There's a concept in Judaism that you uh, may have heard of, tikkun olam. Literally, its meaning, is, which is Hebrew, of course, its meaning is repairing the world. As humans, the idea goes, we inherit a world that's beautiful and good and also riven with sorrow and trouble. The world of human society in particular. And several times in the Talmud, after making a particular legal ruling, the rabbis explained that it must be done mipne tikkun ha'olam, for the betterment of the world, for the fixing of the world. As humans, we have the great privilege of helping to make the world, and especially our own society, all that they could be. It is our nature to be discontented with injustice and to long to beautify what has fallen into neglect and disrepair. And to act on that divine discontent is one of the most important things we can do. I doubt that all of that was in the minds of our state government, but it was a particularly fine moment of leadership just the same when they established the task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. Naturally, the existence of this task force and their preliminary report have ex attracted some national attention. For example, from the pundits at Fox, and naturally, they seem not to know any of the history that the task force itself has studied and related to us. But the history matters. As Malcolm X said, when a knife has been stuck nine inches into someone, pulling it, six, pulling it back six inches isn't progress. This would be true even if the knife had gotten there accidentally. We do, after all, use our taxes to rebuild houses that were washed away in a flood or flattened by a tornado. But the disaster that the task force and the dismantling white supremacy group here at church is concerned with was not a natural one. As Barbara, Susan, and Mary will share, uh, the damage done <clears throat> was done de deliberately by the government, our government, democratically elected and directed out of the conviction that white people should have power over people of other races. The task force in the state task force's charge is to look particularly at the effect on African Americans. But white supremacy which I turn to Merriam-Webster here, is the social, economic, and political systems that collectively enable white people to maintain power over people of other races. White supremacy is more pervasive than that, and it does harm to everyone very much, including white people. The remedy that the dismantling white supremacy group has chosen to focus on also affects people of all races and ethnicities, but I'll get right back to that in a minute. Where we started as a group two and a half years ago was education. We knew things were not as they should be for BIPOC folks, black, indigenous, and people of color. But we didn't think we knew the whole story of how things got to this pass. And we didn't know what we didn't know. So with a commitment to act on what, whatever it was we learned, we dug into history, and we learned a lot that wasn't taught to us in our history classes. Really, you know, 
the ignorance of well-meaning white people and the ignorance of all of us is part of what keeps it all going. And as Malcolm X went on to say in the, in the passage that Sally shared with us, they won't even admit the knife is there. And there he gets to the crux. Knowledge. Acknowledgement. If you don't know the knife is there, if you don't know that the government has systematically enacted laws and policies to keep the best opportunities for white people, well, then when you look around at inequality, you look for other explanations. Why do some people live in slums? Why do some people do better in school and some worse? If you think that everyone has had equal opportunity since 1865, or at the very least, 1965, then you might look at the ones being left behind and think, I hate to say it, but they must not work very hard. They must not know how to manage money. They must have bad parents or a culture that doesn't value education. And then you might think that they seem angry for no good reason. When you know the history, what you see instead is people demonstrating incredible resilience and creativity, working very hard at Sisyphean tasks, parenting and learning under intolerable conditions. And you see the knife. And you know that no matter how it got there, you're going to help get it out and heal the wound and give the person everything they need to get back on their feet. And you're going to know that if the knife was put there by your own government to benefit you, whether you asked for it or not, you're going to work doubly hard. So we in this group have been learning about BIPOC history in general, BIPOC history in this country, not only that of African Americans, but inspired by the state task force, we looked at their preliminary recommendations and the executive summary of the history that led them to make them. They cover issues from actual enslavement to political disenfranchisement to unequal educational opportunity to the pathologizing of the black family. And many of these issues spoke to us. Housing emerged as the issue we want to focus on right now, in part because UUCPA has a long history of working on housing issues and it felt like a way to build upon our strength. Veronica drew on that same strength today in choosing music that evokes home and the longing for home, as well as including music by a composer who was neglected for so long only because she was female and African-American. Some of the housing recommendations are explicitly about discrimination against African-Americans. For example, one of the recommendations is that we eliminate any policies with blatant anti-black residency requirements. Well, yes, we surely will if we encounter them. But we've chosen this recommendation at the moment. Provide clean and secure public housing for vulnerable populations, including those persons who are formerly incarcerated in the foster care system and unhoused individuals. We have many such opportunities here in our area, as we know. It takes persistent effort and public pressure to fund housing for those who need it the most. If this were not annual meeting day, 
We would have set up a table for you to take action right now, but we know you've got a lot of places to put your attention, including our justice partner, uh, before the meeting starts. So instead, we have a couple of suggestions at the end of your order of service, also linked from the webpage for today's service. We will keep bringing them to you, even as the Dismantling White Supremacy Group turns more of its attention to the history of Asian Americans, Latine, and Indigenous folk. Sadly, and again, by design and systematically, African Americans have been disproportionately burdened with incarceration, foster care, and homelessness. So while these vulnerable populations are made up of people of all races, colors, and ethnicities, working to provide them clean and secure public housing is absolutely an act of racial justice, and that's why it's in the reparations recommendations. It's an act of reparation. That is to say, note the similarity in the words, repair, tikkun olam, Remedying the damage done. Healing wounds that have gone untreated for a long time. Restoring relationships. Rebuilding hope. Repairing the world. Good morning. There are obviously many ways in which white people in the country have a much easier and more pleasant life than black people. We all know that. When I started participating in dismantling white supremacy a few years ago, I wanted to lo learn more about how things came about and what could be done to make them better. I started out by blaming it on racial prejudice held by many white people. This kind of prejudice is lamentable, but it also seems to be part of human nature. We have a tendency to identify with a certain group and look down on people in other groups as the other. We may look down on them and we may see them as a threat that has to be stopped. Looking at prejudice as a source of our racial problems, I didn't see myself as being responsible because I thought I wasn't prejudiced. Well, not very much anyway. It didn't take long to get over that idea. I learned about unconscious bias from an excellent book called Biased by Jennifer Eberhard and discovered that I had plenty of race-based prejudices. For example, I saw the bad conditions of slums and believed that the people living in those slums were at least partly responsible and they were mostly black. And I thought that those people couldn't be as good as the people living in nicer neighborhoods. Becoming aware of my own prejudices was the first loss of innocence I'll mention today. It's an area for ongoing work. As I learned more, I began to see that this idea that the wrongs all came from some primitive emotional part of the brain was too simple. For one thing, those powerful forces of racial prejudice didn't just arise spontaneously. They were fostered and channeled by people with an ax to grind, people who were acting out of greed. A very early example in our country's history took place in Jamestown in 1619 when the first black slaves were brought to America. The new slaveholders feared 
the black slaves and the white indentured servants, who also weren't treated very well, might unite and rebel. To prevent that, they deliberately fostered the belief that blacks were inferior and only suited for slavery. Southern slave owners continued to promulgate this myth of inferiority. Prejudice in the service of greed is still operating today. Consider the right-wing politicians who stir up white fears of blacks to energize their base. I was shocked to learn how much harm done to black people arose out of greed. Somehow, it was less horrible to blame the primitive emotional forces of prejudice than cool, rational self-interest. That was another loss of interest, though probably that just means I was naive. But at least I didn't have to see myself as one of the greedy ones. Then I ran across another book, Poverty by America, written by Matthew Desmond. Desmond says that the United States, the richest country in the world, has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. Why? He says, affluent Americans, knowingly and unknowingly, keep poor people poor. Those of us who are financially secure exploit the poor, exploit the poor, driving down their wages while forcing them to overpay for housing and access to cash and credit. We prioritize subsidizing our own wealth over alleviating poverty, designing a welfare state that gives the most to the people who need it the least. Another shock. I knew that I indirectly received benefits from racist government policies of the past, like enforced housing segregation. But Desmond says I'm currently exploiting the poor to subsidize my own wealth albeit unknowingly, until he told me. And he's right. Here's a really small example. I've repeatedly taken advantage of the tax deduction for mortgage interest. That means I got to keep more of my money. That was lost to the government, and that had to be made up from taxes on the people who couldn't afford to buy a house in Palo Alto. I just never thought about it that way. Another loss of innocence. In so many ways, blacks have suffered from white racism, and in so many ways, whites have benefited. With all of my losses of innocence, I have to recognize that I personally have benefited in many ways. What to do about that? White people often feel guilty, and with good cause. Can we find a way to channel our guilt into constructive action? I like a, matter of, a metaphor presented by Elizabeth Wilkerson in the book, Cast. She likens our situation to someone who inherits an old house that hasn't been cared for and is now in terrible shape. She says that the one who inherits the house is not to blame for all the harm that happened in the past, but they are responsible for doing what they can to repair the house. Right now, in the dismantling class, we are looking at housing, one of the major problem areas in our country's racial history. Our class is investigating how we can work with groups dedicated to the creation of low-income housing. In furthering this goal, our class, this coming Tuesday evening, will have guest speakers from Palo Alto Forward 
and Alta Housing, two local organizations whose mission is increasing affordable housing in the area. I think this will be a very interesting class and will help to guide our actions. And you all are welcome to join us in the class on Zoom. There's information in your order of service should you wish to do that. Good morning. I have long been a proponent of affirmative action. As a woman in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, I have seen firsthand the effects of overt and covert sexism and the value of forcing more equal treatment. I recall the department head where I did my graduate work telling me that mathematics was a perfect field for women because it doesn't require a lab and can be done while washing dishes and caring for babies. <laughs> it's no surprise that I was the only woman in my graduate cohort to finish. I was told that women in STEM should be paid less because they quit after a few years. I think that person got cause and effect backwards. When scientific journals started masking authors' names on submitted articles, Acceptance rates for women-authored papers went way up. So I have been quite willing to believe that the same dynamics apply to other underrepresented groups. I know that it's not enough just to stop actively discriminating. Past lack of opportunity has lingering effects. Low expectations and limited resources in elementary and high school creates high barriers if underprepared students are just admitted to colleges without adequate support systems in place. There are all sorts of unwritten rules about how to make it in today's America. It's what some people call white supremacy culture, a term I hate for all sorts of reasons that are not, that are not relevant to this particular discussion. But, up until the dismantling white supremacy group started meeting here at UCPA, reparations were a step too far for me. Neither I nor my family were here prior to the Civil War. I hadn't profited from stealing other people's labor. Why should I pay for what people unrelated to me did to someone else's ancestor? And I pretty much bought into the notion that if you level the playing field now, then the future is good. After all, it pretty much worked for me and my daughter. And then we listened to podcasts and dug deeper into recent and not so recent history of government-sponsored racial financial discrimination. I learned it's not true that I haven't profited from stealing other people's labor, even if it's no longer chattel slavery and I learned that I have had considerable economic advantages that accrued solely on the basis of the color of my skin. Take, for example, the GI Bill. This information is taken from uh, history.com, which is formerly the History Channel. On June 22, 1944, President Roosevelt signed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act into law. It provided college tuition, low-cost home loans, 
and unemployment insurance to veterans returning from World War II. The then head of the House Veterans Committee, a segregationist, a segregationist Southern Democrat, ensured that the largesse of the act would be administered by the states and not the federal government. The result was widespread inequality between blacks and whites in access to benefits. To get a VA loan, you had to find a house to buy and a bank to loan you the money. Then the VA would co-sign the loan. The new suburbs popping up around the country, like Westlake, just west of Daly City, of houses made of ticky-tacky fame, was whites only. Redlining froze, that is, saying these areas are dangerous to loan money to. Redlining froze the neighborhoods that would sell to blacks out of loan money. In 1947, only two of the more than 3,200 VA loans in 13 Mississippis went to black borrowers. In New York and the northern New Jersey suburbs, fewer than 100 of the 67,000 VA guaranteed mortgages went to non-white borrowers. To get GI Bill money for higher education, you had to be admitted to a college. Most colleges and universities in the late 40s and early 50s were segregated. Black colleges were under-resourced and had to turn away most applicants who then did not get VA benefits. This is a quote from the History Channel article. The original GI Bill ended in July 1956. By that time, nearly eight million World War II veterans had received education or training, and 4.3 million home loans worth 33 billion had been handed out. But most black veterans had been left behind. As unemployment, college attendance, and wealth surged for whites, disparities with their black counterparts not only continued, but widened. There was, writes historian Ira Katz-Nelson, no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. End of quote. The most disturbing access aspects of this racism are that it was intentional and government policy. Now, my parents did not profit directly from the GI Bill, but my father's college teaching career was kick-started by the need for professors for all those returning veterans who were collecting education benefits. He was paid by the GI Bill, indirectly, but still. My mother also taught GIs until daddy took a better job at a California state college that wouldn't let spouses, that is to say wives, of professors teach. She was relegated to a secretary's job. We didn't get a VA loan, but white college professors could get commercial loans. So that job teaching GIs let my family buy some property and build a home on it. The GI Bill indirectly lifted my parents out of Depression-era poverty. 
Maybe I do owe people who didn't get that lift something. There are similar stories with other government programs. Amy reminded me that originally Social Security excluded household and farm workers, largely black and brown people. Urban renewal leveled whole city blocks in largely black central city areas, often leaving them empty for years. Interstate highways sliced through black neighborhoods and went around white neighborhoods. Industrial sites and dumps are largely located in proximity to marginalized communities. The list goes on. It's still not clear to me for whom and how we do reparations. But it is clear that some people intentionally got left behind and we owe their descendants. On behalf of UUCPA and CHAC, thank you very much for your generosity. So I'm Christy Iverson, and yes, I'm your last reflection. So we're nearly there. I'm going to talk for, about why doing anti-racism work is, for me, a spiritual practice. So how can doing anti-racism work be spiritual? Isn't it more of a political thing, you might ask? To me, it's both. As I look at our current seven UU principles, I see several of them <clears throat> which inspire me to engage in this work. The first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and the second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, as already mentioned, both inspire me to challenge how I live my daily life and how I interact with others. Am I truly respecting every person's need for dignity and justice? including that person sitting on the corner looking for money? Am I practicing compassion in my interactions with others? Our sixth principle references justice for all. Am I working to make this a reality? Do I even understand what that would look like? And our seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part, is also relevant for me because all life is interconnected and interdependent. What harms other people also harms me. So I must work toward a world that acknowledges and truly understands how allowing harm to happen to others damages us all and prevents us from having a community of peace and justice, that beloved community. So how did these principles lead me to working on anti-racism? There were several things that pointed me in that direction. The first was a beloved conversations class that Amy led here at EUCPA several years ago. This was later followed by Amy's class on dismantling white supremacy, about which you've already heard a lot. And then the beloved conversations virtual training offered by Meadville Lombard Seminary. In the midst of these courses came the murder of George Floyd and so many other people of color that dominated our news cycle for months and still do. Throughout this time, I learned much about parts of our history that I was not previously aware of, or only marginally so. I found that understanding the history and hearing the stories of those affected awakened compassion in me and a deeper understanding of the experiences of people of color in our society. You may be thinking, this work is painful. 
I will feel ashamed to hear what has happened. Both can be true, but it's possible to move beyond these feelings. Some aspects have definitely been difficult for me, including learning the often unpleasant details of our history as a nation. As I immersed myself more in the work, I was drawn to reading, watching, and listening to stories that dramatically show how racism persists in our country and in the world. This is painful. It's also uncomfortable to discover aspects of racism in myself, as I continue to do. I find it important to acknowledge this discomfort and look at it clearly without blaming myself, not easy, or becoming paralyzed by fear of doing or saying something that would hurt others. And I often find it difficult to truly hear and understand the anger of people from marginalized communities or from other white people who think this work is no longer necessary. The other spiritual path that's important for me is that of Buddhist teachings, and in particular, teachings on compassion. These tell us that compassion is not just recognizing that someone is suffering, but being present with that suffering in a way that allows our natural desire to alleviate the suffering to come forth. When I'm able to do that, I can respond to racism from a place of compassion and connection rather than from anger or shame. I'm naturally moved to try to help in some way, whether or not I'm actually able to change the situation. Being able to recognize the suffering of people of color in this country and working for change based on what they say they need helps reduce my own anger, shame, and anxiety. It increases my connection to others and deepens my understanding of our inherent interconnection. As I've learned more about how governments and other organizations in this country created the systems which perpetuate racism and other forms of inequity, I've come to realize that I did not personally create this, this water in which we swim, which constantly reinforces the privileges of white people and of people with money and power. Now I understand that while I'm not happy to have unwittingly been a part of the power structure that keeps people of color at a disadvantage, absorbing this as personal shame is not helpful. What is more helpful is to continue to build my understanding of the history and of the current situation in my own larger community and in this nation, and then based on that understanding, to do what I can to address injustice where I see it. This is my spiritual path. Thank you.